Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and this is episode number 72, and it's part number two of our short Christmas series that we're doing called Keep Christ in Christian. The bumper sticker says Keep Christ in Christmas, and usually the idea is to uh, keep Jesus the center of our thoughts and our hearts and our minds uh, during the Christmas season. Uh, I've always thought that that phrase is kind of smug uh, because it doesn't really draw a circle to include people in, but more so draws lines to keep people out. You don't celebrate Christmas the right way. Uh, Your thoughts about Christmas are not correct. Uh, So you stay over there. We'll stay over here and do it right and keep Christ in Christmas. So we're kind of throwing, we're kind of tweaking that whole phrase uh, here at the podcast uh, this Christmas, and we're talking about keeping Christ in Christian. Instead of keeping Christ the focus of our thoughts during the Christmas season, uh, how do we reflect Christ in our everyday lives all throughout uh, the year and beyond? So keep Christ in Christian. Last week, we talked about the story of Zacchaeus. Uh, why it has nothing to do with Christmas. Uh, go back and listen to it, and uh, you will you will see why. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about the birth story uh, from the book of Matthew, and then next week, we're bringing on Alexander John Shia, and uh, he's going to come on and talk to us about the origins of Christmas, uh, why it's in the month of December, what is the significance of that, uh, he might talk a little bit about uh, the Christmas tree. He's going to talk to us about um, the importance of darkness, all these different kind of things. So make sure you're back here next week to have your mind blown wide open. Uh, before we jump into the episode, though, uh, real quick, patreon.com slash whatifproject is a place where you can go to uh, support the show financially. So if this show has encouraged you, Um, inspired you, challenged you, pushed you forward in your faith, Uh, that is a place where you can go to show your support uh, financially. So anywhere from $3 a month all the way up to $30 a month, you can also make your own uh, tier or level of giving, and every tier gets its own reward. So whether it's a weekly blog post, a bi-monthly podcast episode, um, a book that I send you in the mail, all sorts of goodies. So Go check that out, patreon.com slash whatifproject. And uh, lastly, we have a closed Facebook group uh, called the What If Project Community, which is a place where you can go to find people like yourself. Uh, If you're in this place of uh, deconstruction, reconstruction, rethinking your faith, you feel like you're out in the wilderness, uh, we want you to know that you are not alone. Uh, There are people in that group who are at various points in their spiritual journey, and uh, everybody's in there encouraging each other and cheering each other on. So we have people who have been Christians for a long time. We have people who are new Christians, people who think, maybe I'm not a Christian at all, people who are wondering if God is even real or not. So all sorts of different people, and uh, everybody's in there cheering one another on. So we would love for you to go in there, uh, share your thoughts, hear your ideas, uh, and learn from your journey. So I will put the links to Patreon uh, and the community as well um, in the show notes. So you can go and you can 
uh, check it all out. But for now, uh, this is episode number 72, and the title of this episode is Don't Let What I'm About to Tell You Ruin Christmas. And what I want to do today is I want to talk to you um, a little bit about Jesus' birth story that's found in the book of Matthew. And I want to look at it from a much, 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 much (laughs) different, uh, I guess, angle than we typically do. Now, I will say off the bat that what I'm about to share with you will likely disturb you greatly. Like, this is not going to resemble your traditional youth group Christmas play uh, that your kids put on in church every year. Like, I'm about to share with you some fairly radical stuff. And I tell you that because I need you to hang with me a little bit until the end of the episode. Like, don't get through, you know, the the disturbing piece and then be like, I I can't handle this podcast. It's freaking crazy. And, you know, like, and just ditch the whole thing. Uh, In the next 20 minutes, we're going to uh, deconstruct or take apart some things. But then we're going to uh, reconstruct or put them back together in what I think is a, a very thoughtful and fruitful way. Okay, so so hang with me. Before we jump uh, into the story of Jesus' birth, though, uh, we've got to jump all the way back to uh, the book of Exodus, which is the second book in the Bible, uh, just after the book of Genesis. And we're going to go to chapters 1 and 2, where we find another birth story, which is the story of a baby named Moses. Now, you might know the story. uh, You've probably heard it before, but I want to take us through it a little bit and kind of retell it just so that we're all um, on the same same page. The story goes like this. Uh, Pharaoh was the uh, ruler of Egypt, where the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, were enslaved. And the Bible says that he set out to prevent the Israelites from becoming too large of a people by laying down a very harsh and uh, really sad and frightening command. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 22, he says this, Pharaoh says, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile River, but let every daughter live. So, in other words, to prevent the Hebrew people from becoming too large of a people group, that could potentially uh, overthrow him and their uh, Egyptian slave masters, Pharaoh decided to murder all of the male infants. Why? In an effort to cut down reproduction and slow down the growth of the Israelite people. Now, as you might know, if you know the story, uh, there was a baby boy named Moses who happened to be born uh, right around this time in chapter 2 of Exodus. And he was saved only because his mother hid him in a basket and uh, legend says, or the story says, sent him up a river uh, where he was discovered by Pharaoh's daughter who was bathing in the water. Uh, The storyteller in Exodus says that the the woman ended up taking the baby in as her own and then uh, raising raising him in the palace uh, to become the man who would one day confront Pharaoh and lead the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and right to the very edge of the promised land where they would uh, find their long-awaited freedom. And that's obviously a very quick synopsis 
of the story, but I've always loved this story. I don't know why. Uh, fun fact, back in my very first year of college, uh, I found a kitten in a uh, basket of sorts uh, next to the dumpster of our local uh, Walgreens pharmacy that we had in town. And so I brought the cat home and I named him him Moses because I found him in a, <laughs> in a basket. Uh, and I had him for uh, 19 years. We, we actually had to put him to sleep um, this past year because he had uh, cancer that was making his uh, quality of life uh, terrible. But he was the, the best cat. Uh, Moses found him in a basket as a kitten. So, you know, again, I love the story. I don't know why, but for some reason, it's like always struck me as uh, one of my one of my favorites. And, and what I love about Jewish literature is that there's always more to the story than what you see initially on the surface or even what you see in one particular book or piece of writing such as the book of Exodus. For instance, uh, later Jewish writings, uh, such as one that's called uh, Jewish Antiquities, which was written somewhere around 93 AD, which is 60 years after Jesus died. And it was written by a Jewish historian named Josephus who, by the way, didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah and wasn't exactly one of his biggest fans. But this dude was a historian. Um, He was one of the the few people who uh, sought to write an entire history um, of the Jewish Jewish people. Uh, And so this piece of writing, which is called, again, Jewish Antiquities, adds details to the Exodus account that we don't necessarily see in the book of Exodus but gives a little bit more life, vibrancy to the story, fills in some of the holes and some of the gaps. So Josephus tells us that another reason that Pharaoh wanted to murder all of the male babies was because a scribe had come to him and told him that a king was going to be born to the Hebrew people and that this king would lead a rebellion of sorts against the Egyptians. He would lift up the Israelites. He would win over their allegiance, and he would eventually lead them uh, to a place of freedom. And so uh, he's, uh, you know, he's alarmed by the threat, right? Pharaoh, the, all the alarms go off in Pharaoh's head. This can't possibly be. And so Josephus says that Pharaoh ordered all the male babies to be thrown into the river and destroyed. So in other words, once Pharaoh got wind of this predestined child, he figured the only way to thwart this prophecy was by eliminating all of the male babies. And thus, obviously eliminating the one baby who was prophesied to grow up um, and give him and his kingdom some trouble. Now, pause. You might be wondering, okay, wh- where is this guy getting this information from, right? I, I'm not just making it up, but I actually came across this material in a book uh, that I've been reading over the last couple of months. Um, and it's by a guy named John Dominic Crossan. It's called Jesus um, a revolutionary biography. And uh, in it, he, he points out that with this additional material from Jose, uh, Josephus's retelling of the story, plus an even later Jewish document called the Book of Remembrances, with these two documents in our hand, he said we have four main acts or four main pieces uh, of the Moses birth story that begin to surface. So there's, if you think of Moses's birth as a play, he says there's four main acts to the story, okay? Uh, act number one, he says there is a sign, right? 
Pharaoh receives a sign. He receives a prophecy from a scribe. A baby's going to be born. He's going to grow up. He's going to free the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, right? So there's a sign. Act number two, there is intense fear. Uh, Pharaoh becomes frightened, becomes afraid by the thought of a hero um, arising from those that he had enslaved. And he begins to like obsessively worry and mull this over that the right kind of leader uh, might be able to unite the Israelites together and overthrow him and his empire. So there's a sign from a scribe, then there's fear um, inside of a Pharaoh. Act number three, there's a consultation of sorts. Um, in the book of Remembrances, it's told that once Pharaoh became aware of the prophecy, he consulted with the royal princes of the kingdom, uh, who only served to fuel his fear and assured him that, hey, the only way to get rid of this baby, right, to, to rid the land of this infant, the only way to find him is just to kill all the male babies. That's a horrible thing to do, but that's what you've got to do, right? So there's a sign uh, there's fear, there's a consultation. Act four, there's a massacre. Right? As the story goes, Pharaoh goes ahead, he commands that the unthinkable be done. And in verse 22 of chapter one, again, it says, uh, Pharaoh gave this order to all of his people, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, let every female, let every girl live. And so we've got four acts, right? Act one, a sign. Act two, fear. Act three, a consultation. Act number four, a massacre. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Okay, why am I? Why are we talking about the book of Exodus? Well, let's flip forward uh, to the book of Matthew, and let's zero in on chapter two, where we find the story of another birth, one that you're probably more familiar with, uh, the story of Jesus's birth. In chapter 1, uh, just to give some background, Mary and Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant with Jesus, and Joseph was on the verge of divorcing her because he knew that the baby wasn't his. An angel, though, appears to him in a dream, assures him that Mary did not cheat on him. Uh, this child is not somebody else's. She didn't go sleep with somebody. Uh, but the child is from God, that he should take Mary home to be his wife and, and raise this, this child. And so then we come across chapter 2, and uh, we're going to pick up the story. I'm going to read it for you, uh, actually from the, the Bible, right in front of me here with, the, with my paper. Uh, if you're near a Bible, you're welcome to pick it up. As I always say, though, if you're driving your car, uh, do not read your Bible uh, or close your eyes. If you're not driving, feel free to read along with me, close your eyes, listen to the story. Uh, but this is from the book of Matthew, chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 1 through, uh, we're going to go through 16, I believe. So a little bit of a chunk of scripture here. Uh, let's see if I can do this without hitting the microphone, which is tricky. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, Where 
is the Christ. Where was the Christ to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went, to the, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over a place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up. He took the child and his mother during the night, and he left Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I will call my son. And when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they were no more. Interesting, right? Because notice that the same four acts that are present in the story of Moses' birth are also present in the story of Jesus' birth. Act one, there is a sign, right? A star rose and the Magi came from the east to worship the one who had been foretold to be the king of the Jews, the Messiah, the one who would bring salvation to the people. Act 2, there is what? There is fear. Matthew says that Herod was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him. Why? Well, Herod was known to have a short fuse. And so if a bomb is disturbed and a fuse is lit, everybody around is disturbed as well because they know that when it blows, who knows what the heck this dude is capable of doing, right? So there's fear. Act three, there's what? There's a, a consultation. Matthew says that Herod, uh, once he, he got good and disturbed, he called all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law together, and he asked them where would this Messiah be born. He wanted locations. He wanted details. He wanted tracking devices, right? He wanted whatever information he could get to find out where exactly this baby was going to be located. And then in Act 4, there's what? There's a massacre. In verse 16, Matthew says that Herod gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem, in its vicinity, two years and under, in an effort to do what? To kill this baby Messiah. Much like Pharaoh, he felt the only way, the only way he felt assured 
that he could find the one baby as if he killed all of the babies. Now, the parallels are obvious, right? Both stories share the very same four acts, but here's the disturbing part. And this is where you've got to hang with me, okay? Because if you're a devout follower of Christ, uh, you've been following Jesus for a long time, this story is super important and super crucial to your faith. So deconstructing this story, right, taking this thing apart, looking into the eyes of what we are about to look at. Uh, If your faith in Christ is like a Jenga tower, Taking this piece out, for some people, this is like pulling out the bottom block so the whole tower comes crashing down and nothing is left. So again, hang with me, okay? We're going to let the tower teeter a little bit, but it doesn't have to fall. It doesn't have to crumble. We don't have to throw in the towel on the whole thing, okay? So here's the thing about the story in Matthew's gospel. Scholars disagree on a lot of things when it comes to the Bible. But a good many of them think that Matthew, or whoever wrote this gospel, whether it was Matthew, somebody else, whatever, most likely created at least some of the details of the story in an effort to to shape the story and make a larger point, the point of which we're going to talk about in a moment. But again, Matthew or whoever wrote the gospel most likely created at least some of the details of his gospel in an effort to shape the story and make a larger point. For instance, okay, let's start here. The star that the Magi saw. A star is literally, I don't know, thousands, millions, it's light years away from earth, right? It can't actually move and then stop over a specific house on earth that you are able to see what house it's hanging over, right? Like if you look up at the sky tonight at a star, you can't tell what house it's over, right? It could be your house, it could be your neighbor's house, but if you ride 10 miles away to Starbucks, it might very well be hovering millions of miles over your, your grande latte, right? Like unless the star is lower than maybe an airplane, it's pretty hard to tell where it is in relation to where you are on earth, right? Secondly, second thing to think about, this is the big piece. That was just kind of a a warm-up. We can explain that one away. Uh, But think about this one. Herod's massacre of the children. It's not mentioned or even hinted at in any other source outside of Matthew's gospel. Like no other ancient historical document references this particular event. And not only that, but archaeologists say there is no archaeological evidence to support that such a massacre ever happened. Wars, genocide, natural disasters, archaeologists always find something that proves or evidences the event. Something is always left behind, whatever it might be. But that's not the case with Herod's massacre. All of which raises some suspicion in the scholarly world that Matthew's story, or at least this part of it, is not real and is 100% made up. Now, add on to that, Mark's gospel 
was the first gospel to be written. And scholars agree that Matthew, Luke, and probably John likely would have had his gospel with them as a source or a reference point um, as they were writing their own. But Mark doesn't even talk about the birth of Jesus, right? He just rolls right into the story of Jesus' life. Uh, this guy, Cross, in this book that I read, uh, he looks at all of this information, and he says that the proper title for the first two chapters of Matthew isn't really the birth story, but more so the birth parable. Yes, Jesus was a real person. Uh, his, his Scholars do not deny that Jesus existed. He was certainly a real person. Jesus was obviously born, right? Yes. But the details that we have in the Gospels, he says, are more than likely far from what you and I would consider to be historically accurate. Now, at first, your mind wants to go into crisis mode, right? Like, no way, you know, this can't possibly be true. Like, this is heresy. Uh, I need a shower to wash the dirt of this podcast off of my body, right? Like, I get it. I did the same thing. Uh, when I first read about this stuff um, in this book, and then I have a couple other books as well, um, I texted a friend who's much smarter than me. And I said, so basically the Bible's a giant lie. You know, the gospel writers are deceivers. The stories of Jesus' birth are bogus. You know what? I'm done. <laughs> I'm ready to go to the extreme. I'm done. I'm selling my books. Uh, I, I don't know. This is this is silly. I can't, I can't do this. Right? I can't sign on to this thing. It's all a lie, right? So listen, I get it. Okay, this is a tough pill to swallow, but but hang hang with me, right? We just deconstructed, let's reconstruct, right? Because we need to remember that, yes, the Bible would be a book of lies, and the gospel writers would be deemed untrustworthy if and only if they were claiming to report historical details as you and I understand historical details in 2019, soon to be 2020, North American culture. Like if Matthew opened up his gospel, he said, hey, everybody, present people and people of the future, uh, I want you to know what I'm doing right now is I'm writing a history book. Why? So that you can know each and every important detail of Jesus's life, especially his birth. Like these stories of his birth, these are exactly how they happen. I'm not exaggerating. I'm not adding to it. Like these stories are legit. If that was verse one of Matthew's gospel, well, then we'd have a problem, right? Because then we could say that, yeah, Matthew is a, is a liar. But his goal wasn't to do any such thing. And this is important. And we've talked about this before, but it's worth saying again. The reality is that the biblical writers were not out to record historical details as you and I understand historical details to be. They weren't interested in writing a document uh, detailing each and every movement and word of Jesus so that you and I would have this perfectly preserved document 2,000 years later that we could digest, rip apart, analyze, and use to prove and defend uh, the historical accuracy of Jesus' life. That was not their goal. People didn't care about that kind of stuff back then. Instead, they're writing to specific people uh, who, were, who were part of a specific audience, 
sitting in a specific place in history, facing specific circumstances. Matthew was not writing a book. He was writing a letter to people. This was a letter that he was writing. And he was writing in order to make a specific point that would be unique to them and their place in history to likely encourage them to do what? To stick with the way of Christ in the midst of whatever thing, trial, circumstance, whatever that they were facing or were up against. Now, merge that with the fact that Jewish storytelling was marked by a a license, I guess you can say, a license of sorts uh, to add to, subtract from, and even pump various details into stories that might not have originally been there. Now, take all of that stuff into consideration, all of a sudden, what Matthew what Matthew likely did with the story, uh, and the story of Herod in particular, and other details of the story of Jesus' birth, all of a sudden, it doesn't feel so bad, right, to entertain the idea that maybe he made that part of the story up. Because Matthew wasn't out to deceive anybody. But rather, Matthew set out to make a very specific point to a very specific people in his very specific letter. So what was Matthew's audience? Who was Matthew's audience? And what was the point he was trying to make uh, in his letter and in this story of, of Jesus? Uh, let's start with, with the audience. In the year 60 AD, uh, 60 AD, so we're talking about 30-ish years after Jesus' death, historians tell us that Jewish revolts were uh, jumping up, popping up, appearing in and around the, the Palestine area. And they say that a, a full-fledged, 100% throw-it-down revolt against the Roman Empire was was imminent, right? Like it was coming sometime in the very near future uh, in 60 AD. Why? Because the Jews are tired, right? They're tired of being oppressed. They're tired of being taken advantage of, whether it's the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, whatever. They're tired of being pushed around, bullied by yet another empire. Right, it started with Egypt, and it hasn't stopped since. So now, you know what? We're ready to fight back, right? Ten years later, uh, in the year 70 AD, the emperor of Rome ordered his troops to invade and destroy the very center of the holiest place of Jewish life, right? The place believed by Jews to be the very center of the universe, uh, the place where Jews came to connect with the divine uh, the place where, uh, where that was the most holy place to all of the Jews more than any other place, he commanded them to march into the temple and level it to the ground. Uh, Alexander Shia, who's coming on the podcast next week, uh, he has a book called Heart and Mind. I would highly recommend this book. Um, he looks at the four Gospels in a very specific way, but one of the things he does is he gives you the background and the context of each gospel, talks about when it was written, the audience to whom it was written, what was going on in the world at the time it was written. Very interesting stuff. He says this about this event of the leveling of the temple. He says, There is no known equivalent to what Rome did on that day. The temple's high altar, the heart of worship, was shattered to pieces. Uh, troops burned all 
of the Torahs and the scrolls destroyed all the holy vessels. Some soldiers took down the massive temple wall stone by stone and completely removed them and carried them away from the city. The soldiers massacred all of the temple's authorities, the priests, the scribes, and their families. Tens of thousands of Jews were slaughtered. The temple, all of its authorities, he says, and all of its worship ceased to exist. And the loss threatened the foundations of Hebrew cosmology and wiped out every leader of the Jewish faith. 70 AD, right? The destruction of the temple. Crazy, heartbreaking stuff. After the massacre was over, those temple leaders who were still alive, the very few, the handful of them, two handfuls, whatever, they, they hightailed it out of there, right? They left, history says, to a place called Antioch, which became the uh, new center of Jewish faith, and the uh, inhabitants of which became the uh, recipients of Matthew's gospel. And so this is the context of the story, Okay. Uh, these are the specific people that Matthew was writing to, um, and these were the specific circumstances that they were up against. Their entire lives were literally turned upside down. As the entire temple, the very center of their lives, the place and the very thing upon which their whole faith and their life revolved, was gone. And so they're asking themselves, right? They're in the aftermath of this. The dust is settling in their minds, in their hearts, in their lives. Very literally, the dust is settling in the world. And they're wondering, how are we going to live? What are we going to do? How are we going to go on? How are we going to rebuild? Where is God? Right? What the heck is he doing? What are we going to do now? And so Matthew wrote his gospel to encourage these people to encourage them as they approached and began to climb this great uh, mountain of change. And he crafted the stories in such a way to remind them that the way of Christ was theirs to live. And that the way of Christ and only the way of Christ would lead them up this mountain into a new and fresh terrain, to a place of freedom and to a place of life. You see, Matthew crafted the birth story of Jesus to reflect the birth story of Moses. Why? Because he wanted his readers to know and to associate the fact that Jesus was the new Moses. Moses was a baby who would grow up to confront the evils of Egypt, go toe-to-toe with the most powerful man of the time, Pharaoh, and ultimately lead his people to freedom. And so Matthew wanted his readers to know that a new Moses was on the scene. Jesus was a baby who grew up to confront the evils of Rome, went toe-to-toe with the most powerful machine of the time, the Roman Empire, was crucified, dead, buried, and rose again on the third day. Why? To ultimately lead people and all people everywhere to a place of freedom. He wanted his readers to remember that just as slavery wasn't the end of the story for the Israelites, and just as Moses would rise up from among the people and lead them to safety, 
So the demolition of the temple wasn't the end of the story for the Jews. And a man named Jesus had risen from his people to model a way of life that would lead them to everlasting freedom and peace regardless of what important piece of their lives was crashing down around them. Matthew wanted them to know that Jesus is the new Moses. And so the man took some liberties as he wrote the gospel because he wasn't sitting down to write a a book that he thought you and I would have all these years later. He was sitting down to write a letter to encourage these people. So he likely added to the story, maybe subtracted some pieces from the story likely completely made up various parts of the story, such as Herod killing all of the male children. Why? Not to deceive his readers. They knew that what he was writing wasn't the way it happened. Not to lie, not to be dishonest, but because his intention wasn't to write a history book that you and I would understand a history book to be 2,000 years later. But he was writing to craft a story of biblical proportions. Right? That would remind his very troubled and very frightened and very overwhelmed readers that just as Moses had led the Israelites out from under the boot of the Egyptians, so Christ had created a way to lead them out of slavery, the slavery of their own fears, anxieties about the change that was staring them down as they tried to figure out how to go about their lives and their faith without the very center of their faith being in existence any longer. And one other thing to close it out. This is an idea that I didn't read in any book. Okay, so you can feel free to fact check me. Uh, But this is something that uh, came to me during my own morning quiet time uh, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, but when, we, when Moses received the Ten Commandments from God, uh, Exodus says that he went up to Mount Sinai. He receives these commandments. He brings them down on two stone tablets uh, where those commandments would then go on to kind of act as these laws, right, that would govern the people um, and the community of, of Israel. Fast forward to Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew 5, right, Jesus, who now is Matthew's new Moses, doesn't go up to the top of a mountain, but goes up to the top of what Matthew calls a mountainside or a small hill. And from this mountainside, he teaches the people uh, in what has become known as the Sermon on the Mount. And he gives them these new commands, and he revolutionizes all of the things that Moses had taught them years before. He says things like, you have heard it said, right, dot, dot, dot. This is what Moses said. He said, but I say to you, dot, 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 right? This was the command. I'm tweaking it. I'm adding it. I'm changing it, whatever. Uh, He gave them this new set of of rules, so to speak, this new way of of life. But, But here's something interesting. When Jesus comes down the mountainside, three chapters later in chapter eight, he doesn't come down with stone tablets of commands in his hands. There's no laws in his hands. But instead, if we read the rest of Matthew's gospel, he comes down that mountainside with with healing in his hands. And throughout the rest of Matthew's gospel, uh, we see him healing on what I count as 11 different occasions. 
Moses came down from Mount Sinai with ten commandments in his hands. Jesus comes down from the mountainside and healed on eleven different occasions throughout the rest of Matthew's gospel. Uh, one. Let's go through them. One. In chapter 8, he healed a man with leprosy. Two. Also chapter 8, he healed the daughter of a Roman uh, soldier or a centurion. Uh, three, in chapter 8 again, he healed Peter's uh, mother-in-law. Chapter 4, or sorry, number 4, uh, chapter 8 again, he healed uh, two demon-possessed men. Five, chapter 9, he healed a paralyzed man. Uh, six, chapter 9 again, he raised a girl from the dead while also healing a sick woman at the same same time. Number seven, in chapter nine, again, he healed two blind men and someone who was demon-possessed. Uh, number eight, chapter 12, he healed a demon-possessed man. Uh, number nine, in chapter 15, he healed a young girl who was demon-possessed. Uh, number 10, in chapter 17, he healed a young demon-possessed boy. And number 11, in chapter 20, he healed two blind men. Now, if we're to add up all the people involved in these stories uh, he obviously healed many more than 11 people. But I find it interesting that Matthew, who again is writing a letter, crafting a story, uh, talks about 11 different occasions upon which Jesus healed a person or groups of people after he came down uh, from the mountainside. Why do I find that interesting? Because whereas Moses came down from the mountain with laws in his hands that would govern the people of Israel, Jesus came down from the mountainside with healing in his wings that would bring freedom to people who were oppressed, outcasted, and lonely. And he didn't heal 10 different times to match the 10 uh, different commands that Moses received from God, but Matthew has him healing 11 different times. He shows Jesus one-upping Moses to perhaps, maybe, who knows, symbolize as an exclamation point on his life and ministry. So as to say, yeah, laws, rules, all those things, they're important. We just talked about that. But nothing is more important than the love and the healing that I have come to bring the world. Do you want to keep Christ in Christian? my friends. Let's be like Jesus. Let's be like the new Moses. Let's bring healing to the world. Who in your life, in your world, your community, your church, your workplace, your circle of friends, who is in need of some healing today? And what would it look like for you to come down to the mountaintop of your own faith and follow Christ to lower yourself into that person's world this year? into that person's situation, into their universe, the universe of the people who the world or church or whatever it sees as sick or sinful or lost or different? And what would it look like for you to bring healing, a healing word or gesture or deed into their lives this Christmas season and beyond? Let's keep Christ in Christian, my friends. Uh, a very Merry Christmas to you um, and to yours. And I will see you next week, uh, the Monday before Christmas, with our dear friend, uh, Alexander John Shia. Bye-bye.